listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Well, I have two things we can lead with here, Kirk. I have something that's interesting to me and potentially, I don't know if exciting is the right word, but intriguing. And the other one is bad news. So which kind of guy are you? Which one are we going to spend more time on? Bad news. Well, then let's see that. Le- uh, no, actually, I don't I don't think either one we need to spend time on. They're more like announcements. Okay. Well, if they're relatively the same discussion length, then let's lead with the yes. bad news. Lisa has a stress fracture. <sighs> and her shin? Yep. Mm-hmm. Tibia? Yep. Shoot. Medial side of her tibia? Uh, I mean, it's right... I don't know exactly, but she has a lump above it, and it is directly on that uh, that that like the edge of the tibia, directly in front where tibia leads right into that front of your whatever that muscle is that runs on the front of your shin, mm-hmm. the front calf. Yeah, the old front calf. <laughs> it's a technical uh, term. She has a lump right there. Uh, She's been dealing with that for a while too, like wondering what's going on with her shin. I believe because she messaged me month or two ago maybe more about wondering what Longer. was going on there yeah and then this is a weird thing so i guess i'll just open the floor to our armchair and real doctors in the audience mm-hmm. but she when she came back from her hernia surgery last year mm-hmm. she in like november or something wrote on strava bad run i'm worried i have a stress fracture i remember seeing that she yeah, she took some time, a little bit time down. It kind of went away. And shortly after, she developed a lump, a bump, like a pebble under her skin on the very front of her tip. That was obviously attached to her bone and part of her bone. That's what it feels like to me. You know how you're, you're just, you're, if you run your finger up the spine, really, that ridge on the front of your tibia, mm-hmm. I'm not using any medical terms here, just, oh, just so everyone at home can get a, a view of this, that ridge that runs up the front, it's not smooth. It's never is on anybody. You know, it's, a, it's a little like, it's a little bumpy, like a wriggle, wriggly rubber band that's kind of stretched, but not all the way stretched. It's like a little lumpy and bumpy. So any one of those hard bumps you feel, imagine that four times it's as big. a periosteum that lines that bone three times as big maybe that's what she has so there. i've had and she's when all my stress she's had fractures, that for months that's what happens in the healing process is i will develop a yeah. lump a calcium deposit that will cover the crack and heal it over so that tracks mm-hmm. so she's had that for i mean minimum five months it could be as long as a year ago we're not sure when the lump started mm-hmm. she's had it for a long time so she goes to the cairo and says like it's getting bigger i think I think I'm not sure. What do you think? And he's like, well, you know, there's a lot of, he's a chiropractor. So he's, you know, just talking holistically about it. There's a lot of things. It could be, uh, you know, calcium deposit. It could be a bone tumor. It could be a lot of different things. Did he do the old gong test on it? No, he didn't. He pushed on it and worked on it. And she said it lit up. She's had no pain in the area ever. She had pain immediately. He's like, well, if it's, one of the non-bad things, it should go away within a few weeks now. It should reduce in size. If it doesn't, let's get an x-ray. Like four runs later, she said in the from mile three to four, it felt like her shin was breaking in half. So she stopped and then started and it felt fine. She finished her runoff, came home and told me. I said, get an x-ray. So she went in the next morning, got an x-ray. 
showed a fracture, a very clear in fracture the in the bone. In the x-ray, very clear. Come I can on. read it. Dude, your wife is tough as nails if she's running through something that you can see on an x-ray. Of all my stress fractures, Bracken, not one. rarely show up. I've had like nine to You'll 11. You'll see that clouding. Zero have showed up on x-ray. They've all showed up on bone scans or MRIs, not one. And I've been in a lot of pain. So that just tells me like, holy cow. Lisa. Yeah. I mean, she's a tough person. But the question becomes, not to brush that over. Yeah, she's a tough person, period. So the question is, is this a reoccurrence of a stress reaction she had early? Is it possible that you're seeing an old fracture show up? Like this lump's been there. Has this already healed or is there a second occurrence under the lump? So she's she has a meeting with an osteopath uh, on the 18th and she'll get more clarity there. So she's obviously, I mean, she's not a wreck, but she's obviously tied to her running very intimately. So she is not happy with this mm-hmm. news. Hey. So... I'm looking up Pelotons, like, do I pull the trigger on a Peloton, or do we get a gym membership? What can we do? Kind of trying to put it off for a week. Uh, and then what can we do to preserve sanity after that point? Because she runs as a daily dose every single day. Does it hurt so much that she couldn't go out and run now? Like, it, the camel's back is broke? No, and she's not even sure if she's feeling it now because she's thinking about it. Yeah, I get it. She's like, I think I feel it. I don't know. But she hasn't had pain in it in months. Had pain on one run. You know, according to her, who knows if she's had discomfort? Because you get used to things, mm. as you well know. So anyway, that's where we're sitting right now. So just an update for the running public. I may even just delete this out of here because I haven't talked to her if she's ready for this to be public news yet. But man, I'll talk to her afterwards and then we'll see. Fractures are tricky things, man. And sometimes you can like run through them when it's already cracked. And sometimes it's nearly impossible. A lot of times what happens, because this happened to me three times on my tibia, is you develop that lump over a stress fracture or stress reaction. And then the next, the stressor, it gets real bulletproof where it keels over. And right where that lump ends is the next weak point. Right where that ne- that lump mm-hmm. is done being, and then that next crack, tsh, right at the edge of that lump. And guess what? A lump builds over that. Want to know where the next crack? It just gets pushed down the chain. And so with the tibia stuff, it's very likely, and I'm not a doctor, but in my experience, she very well could have had at least a stress reaction or maybe a fracture, either reopened it, but more likely right at that weak spot where that healing stopped is where that next bend in the bone happens. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where it gets pushed to. So there's a chance that's interesting. that could be the case. Uh, not diagnosing, just from my own experience. I'm actually just going to show you the picture so you can see how clear it is. But anyway, that's that's the deal. It would track with how she did her timeline a little bit, but um, either way, it doesn't change. But this is a reoccurrence or a secondary fracture of whatever she had last time. Well, Lisa, nothing to be ashamed of, of course. Uh, man, tough break. Yeah, I thought of you right away, obviously. I've had my fair share. The good news about the tibia is that of all my fractures, I've had a number in the, f- the feet and um, foot, fibula, tibi- tibia. Mm-hmm. It's washed out, unfortunately. It's, yeah, it's not going to show, is it? Uh, it just looks like white, so no, it's not. We'll cover it up and then. Uh, I can't see anything. I wish I could. But I was saying, oh, there, there it is. Go. Oh, my goodness. That is a crack. Wow. Yeah. That looks to correlate with the lump right in the middle, actually. So Directly yeah, underneath. Well, yeah. then, who knows? But uh, the tibia heals quick. It heals quicker than other bones that I've experienced, the quickest healing of all my fractures. Um, not saying it will be the case for her and not foo-fooing it, but it is a nice a bone that does heal quick. The problem— It's not foot. 
the problem is is that no matter how quickly it heals, the comeback always has to be slow. Like you yeah. can't go back to running 40 miles a week. It's six miles a week for three weeks. And then it's 10 miles a week for three weeks. And then you get back eight weeks and you can start to ramp up mileage. It's kind of a process. And that's the issue. You and I train for events. And so we can approach training like training. She runs to run. And that is not conducive to how she goes about this so anyway that's what she's going through you guys are the type prayers are appreciated if you're not uh if you have advice or hey if you're looking to sell a peloton hit me up if you're not the the prayer type send the vibes the good vibes that's right yeah. uh, exciting news not exciting but interesting mm-hmm. uh we received some more puma shoes with the fast star the faster um surprisingly good shoe I've been, what is this weave? I just received? actually I don't have any. We both got a pair, but they ran a little small. So I the pair that because you're about a quarter to a half size bigger than me in the shoes typically. Yeah, I think so. And I I am like right bang on, almost small in the size you would have had. You would have never fit in them. So I took your size and we're working on I'll get you a different size. But anyway. I it looked almost gimmicky. If you've ever seen a picture of the Puma Faster F A S T dash R, it's stable. It has very good grip. It has a pronounced like toe off happening. Really comfortable, but firm at the same. It's just it supports my foot well, and it's stable. It does not look like a stable shoe, and it is it's legit. I've been testing a, super a lot shoe? of shoes. It's a carbon shoe? Yeah, it's considered a super shoe. Yeah, carbon shoe. It's. I don't even have it in front of me because I ran in it last night, but it has an exposed plate. It's a decoupled forefoot and heel, two different clumps of foam, and the plate connects it, and you can see the plate connecting it. It's wild. Well, I've been running in the Puma. I've been pleasantly surprised. Deviate that uh, they sent us, and uh, the Deviate I've been wearing once a week. I guess we haven't talked about the Deviate, but um, my longer efforts where I'm like, hey, maybe I'll do like a cut down long run, for example beautiful shoe for like longer if you want to go quick great there's enough cushion mm-hmm. if you want to just go run in it but like if you want to go fast in it it kind of fits both bills so deviate's been a good shoe i've been using that for a lot of cut down work where i'm, I'm not going top end speed more like threshold stuff yeah been great but anyways okay and i've been using the deviate nitro elite that's the the uptick from yours it's much lighter it's supposed to be their top end carbon ratio it's the one that uh Seidel, molly Seidel wore hmm. and got her her, her olympic medal in that shoe um but it just feels like a fancy racing flat to me i feel no forward propulsion whatsoever in any way shape or form i love the shoe it's comfortable it's light but it's like the next evolution of what one of our old school racing flats would be this shoe i feel some rocker to it i feel the i feel the foam it's so it's night and day from that one and it's been a pleasant surprise i read some reviews saying it was clunky or they didn't like it or unstable i don't know what people were smoking because i've been very impressed with that shoe dva has so, no more to come on that no stuff. forward propulsion as well but uh, a fantastically comfortable shoe yeah i feel the same about mm, it yeah. okay okay well sweet and not so sweet Exactly. Yeah. Bittersweet, I think they call that. Anyone who's listened to Lisa's episode knows that she is not the person to get an injury. No. No. Well, I'll send her the vibes. So we have several Training Tuesdays in a row, 
had me tell you there's some really good questions. I'd like to do a full episode on it. And then we think about it and decide, ah, I just don't know if we could milk that for an hour, which obviously, you know, we would end up milking it for an hour, but instead we're just going to do a long form Q and a today and give not full episode answers, but not just a breezy little answer on some of these. Some are normal. Some are like deep dive questions and I'm excited for this. Cool. Yeah. I have 16 screenshots on top of whatever you have. We just, we constantly get so backed up. It's so wonderful for you guys to send us questions and a little bit of, you know, I wish it's like I could, we could do a Q and a every week. Honestly, if we had to, by the number of questions we get fielded, um, it's just like, sometimes we feel like we saturate you guys with these, but Bracken and I personally Mm -hmm. have talked, um, that these are actually probably one of the funner episodes for us to do because it forces our brain to explore holes we don't often think about um like forefront so selfishly i enjoy these and people sending questions isn't a pain it's actually i like receiving them so we do get a lot and i always ahead of time like we're going to read some questions that probably um i already passed whatever you're looking to get an answer for so whoops yeah what do you do you want to start there's some good ones uh, yeah, actually I'm going to lead with one that wasn't a Q and a, but someone directed me to a let's run thread. I, I mentioned this the other mm-hmm. day on training Tuesday. What is the biggest difference between pros and everyone else? Hmm. Pros and amateurs pros and the every man, every woman. And I read through it and I eventually just screenshot the worst answer I saw. And I want to discuss that. <clears throat> okay. I have, do you have an answer? If you had to give one sentence. What is the biggest difference between pros and the every person? There's no decision for a pro. That would be my answer. I don't know if that's the best answer if you gave me a week to think about it, but they don't question getting out of bed and working out in the morning. It just is. It's like brushing your teeth. It just is. Um, like it's raining. Yeah, it just is. We go run. It's snowing. We just run. We're tired. We just run. The workout looks hard. We just run. We got bad sleep. You might sleep in a little later, but you just run. If you're doubling, you don't sleep in later. You just run. And in the evening when you're tired, and so, you just run. It just is. They don't... Now, I shouldn't say like whitewash the whole thing as one person, but in general, I mean, even look at Tyler, who wasn't full-time pro. He's just running pro times. It just is. They're, he just runs 120 to 130, and he does it every day, and it just is. That's just the way of life. Emotion does not dictate if or if not they get the work done. Emotion is no, off and the often table. they're emotionally flighty. That's fine, but they'll whine and complain, and <laughs> then they nail it. Yep, and then they whine and complain, and they do it again. It's almost like their process could be the most heady group in the entire world, but their emotion still doesn't dictate whether it gets done or it doesn't. That is taken out. It's an emotionless yeah. act. I feel no emotion when I brush my teeth in the morning, but when it's done, damn, yeah. it feels good. It's like one of those things. I was going to say probably the answer that you think is the worst, but if you're going to layer on top of that, like just God given talent, like the pros, that's the easy answer. Well, correct. <laughs> it's but the it's, real like, answer. it's the real answer that everybody hates because everybody thinks they can, want, they can work hard enough or smart enough to be as fast as a pro and 99 to the nth degree will never become that because it is not within their DNA, including mine. And yet I've made a career around it. So don't feel singled out if I say you're never going to be a pro because you don't have the talent. Because it is true. I hate to say it. It's true. Some kid puts on his running shoes in sixth grade and goes run 450 in the mile in their first crack. 
and you can train your whole life and will never hit that because that is God-given <laughs> talent. That is nothing that sixth grader has earned yet up to this point. But continue. <laughs> no, and I, I think we should say that. Like That's the real end. The biggest answer is genetics. Yeah. They are fundamentally superior at running to everyone else. Now, there are some cases. Tyler German, for example. He was, in his own words, a mediocre and average runner in college. But think of the talent pool he's talking about. He was an average Division I full scholarship runner. That already puts him at the pointy end of the, the spectrum. That's the narrow end. That is the tip of the spear. Of the thousand fastest people in North America, he was maybe in the top two or three hundred. Like that's already above and beyond. Him at his most mediocre was faster than most of us will ever, ever be. I mean, he was 30, 44 in the 10K. How many of us can run 15, 22 for one 5K, let alone two back to back and say, eh, I was all right. Mm -hmm. You know, he's in the plane in the deep end of the pool, but he passed the swim test to go in the deep end <laughs> right. of the pool. Yeah. It's but even the people who are mediocre, very average. You hear stories. Someone was an 18 minute 5K runner in high school and made the Olympic trials in the marathon. Yeah. That's a spectacular journey, but that is a gift. Their talent wasn't right there at the surface. It had to be unearthed, but they still had a genetic gift that most people don't have. It just took longer to maximize it. And that person might have been focusing on something. His body wasn't predisposed quite for a 15-minute effort, but was predisposed for a two-and-a-half-hour effort. You can deviate 10 points a center from what you're given. And let's say you have the best God-given talent in the world, but you end up obese. Well, you can deviate 10 points a center as obese, and maybe you trim up and become and lighten up, and now you're 15 to 20 points a center, and suddenly that's good enough to be a, a world-class athlete. There's a lot of factors here, but the factor is the pros, the world-class, show up with the genetic gifts, crafted from typically a young age, manage to stay injury-free. Most of them keep their head in the game. Everything goes right, and they're the <laughs> the one percenters that everything lined up along the way. And you have a few outliers, which is why we all have hope, I guess. And, and people don't like that answer on both sides. The pros don't want to hear that either because most of them weren't the best person they knew. Sure. And it, you, you see this with, uh, with drug users in every form. You hear it with MLB home run champs. You hear it with, uh, with physique champions. If you've ever watched the, uh, pumping iron documentary mm -hmm. or, or, um, what, what, what was that Netflix one? And it had all the current big names in it. There's the one that was on Ronnie Maybe Coleman. Pumping Iron 2. Ronnie Coleman one that yeah. had a lot of it was a good one. They do it. Runners, cyclists, they all say the same thing. You couldn't do what I do, even if you took it. Because you don't know the work that it took. And they're not necessarily and wrong. And they almost he, No, they're not wrong. But it doesn't change the fact that you had a gift. Like maybe the average runner with your talent couldn't do what you did. But just the fact that you had to work hard for it doesn't change the fact that you're genetically gifted. Also doesn't like take away from the their hard work. It's like a very... Exactly. Right. And that's what they hear, right. saying that the difference between you and me is genetics. It doesn't mean you're lazy. You still have to work your butt off to be a pro. But the prerequisite is that you're genetically capable of unearthing that talent through years and decades of hard work. So it's, it's, they're not mutually exclusive. They have to still be there. And that's what pros don't like hearing is that they're genetically superior. They'll say, I'm no more talented. You see this a lot. I am no more talented than anyone else I've ever run with. I was just willing to put in the work. Like, well, half of that is true. 
you were willing to put in the work, but you're also a freak of nature. You're right. We could make a whole episode out of this one question. So why don't we yes. stop ourselves um, here? <laughs> you feel my passion about well, this. Well, no, me too. I just I said some unpopular things that are unfortunate or unlikable truths, but we can continue. Yeah. So here's the bad answer. I screenshot this one. They're like saying VO2 max. No. Lactate threshold. No. Blah, 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 blah. Or some people are questioning all these things. A VO2 max, lactate threshold, ability to push through pain. Someone says, no. Pros have all day to run, <laughs> multiple times even. Strength train, drills, recover, massage, eat enough food. This is their 40-hour week. Has nothing to For do us, with us, nine that. to fivers. Oh, that's fire me up. For, <laughs> Sorry, continue. For us, nine to fivers, we have to pick one or two of these things to fit into our schedule each day. Time is the biggest difference. And I do not like cursing on here, but I'm just going to call bullshit. Oh, did you say complete? I'm sorry, Colleen, but this is complete and utter bullshit. That is just passing the buck. That is the reason you are not successful. Whoever wrote this is because you passed the buck. You said we have to pick one to two of these things to fit in. Now, can I read these things one more time that they think they can only do one to two of? They have all day long to run, sometimes multiple times, strength train, drills, recover, massage, eat enough food. First of all, I guarantee you're eating plenty. (laughs) (laughs) That's not any amateur's problem is finding enough time to eat enough food if you live in a first world country. I bet you they can barely afford the right food to eat, though, on a distance runner's pro salary. So you could almost say that's a I mean, check mark in the negative column. A lot of them live on minute made white rice and and the the chicken breast that's about to expire in the grocery store that's on sale. But keep going. Eat enough food, Kirk. Someone's complaint is, I you know, I could have been all pro in the day. I didn't have enough time to eat enough food. I'm legit. <laughs> what, totally What valid. are you doing with your time? <laughs> like, drink some Nesquik or something. You'll be fine. Valid. Oh, my goodness. But even though this is the most, ob- not the most, but a very obnoxious, like, expanded, loud-in-your-face version of a fallacy, it does represent a lot of what people think about pros. Oh, I could do that too if I could double every day and get massages and do all my drill work. It's like, all right. Okay. I'd like to just break that down a little bit. If let's say there are a hundred pro distance runner athletes, and I'm using pro in loose air quotes, a hundred distance runner pro athletes in the United States, trail, mm-hmm. track, cross country. Whatever it is, 100 pros in quotes. How many of those pros don't work a side job? How many of those pros aren't marketing for the companies that endorse them and spending a lot of their time? I bet you in the 15, you might be talking about 15 people in the entire country. I was going to say 10, 10 to 20. That's what you're talking about. Everybody else that you think like you see these people in the Olympics. Yeah, they're also working 30 hours a week at a shoe store. Or they're also mm-hmm. side or coaching computer programming from their house. Anyways, continue. But it's a fallacy that they're not NFL football players on a five million dollar a year salary. They're getting paid maybe thirty grand a year to run. All their race travel and everything else and expenses are taken care of, and they still can't pay all their bills with that. So they need to get a side hustle, and that is the cold hard truth. In fact, a thirty thousand dollar a year contract would be like a golden ticket in the endurance world. 
from I mean, really. So anyways, continue not to be real, derail your point. No, no. I mean, that's the point of this is to just like go off on this and, and remind people that pro means very different things in different sports. Now, if you had said triathlete, I would agree with you. You as a nine to fiver don't have the allotted time to train 20 to 30 hours per week and be good at your job and have a relationship. I don't believe you do. If you were insanely talented, you could maybe pull it off on 15 hours a week, but I don't think there are many 15 hour a week trainers anymore in, in, in long course triathlon and even Olympic distance. You need 20 to 30 hours. It's kind of mandatory. And there are people who can qualify for Kona without that. No one's on the podium. No one's top 10. I don't think anyone's top 20 without a minimum 20 hours a week, 52 weeks a year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I would say that. Sure. Distance running is not one of those. Mm-mm. Elliot Kipchoge, probably just the greatest distance runner we've seen. And if you're going to argue that, there are only two names you could argue that with. So if you're in the conversation, like greatest, yeah, probably anything outside of that, you're just fanboying whoever that person is well, on the women's side. I, Point is, yeah, if you can name on one hand, I mean, you could say Daniel Coleman, you could maybe say, um, Hakeem uh, Algarouge, mm-hmm. but if you can if you can name the names of people who can argue that they're better than you in the history of the planet, you're an elite company. You know what he does all day long? Chores, menial, manual labor in their training village. Mm-hmm. Chores, because he can't train more than three hours a day. Right. Else you do? It's really really hard to. Yeah. Like three hours a day times seven, that's 21 hours. And that is the most you could ever possibly do. Yeah, but all that time that it takes likely, to eat, you're forgetting about that. And that's most likely contains all your drill work and your recovery practices. It's just, I'm not buying it. Pros are not better because they have more time. Pros were granted some more time if they're good enough by sponsors because they were already that good. Pros were invited to the party when they did all of that when they didn't have the time. Yeah, And then they groomed it a little more once they were given the time through sponsorship or pro status or however it works. Yeah. There are single-digit people per year who go right from college to a pro contract without working. Single-digit. All the rest come out and beat the sponsored athletes, and then there's a scramble to sign them. Mm-hmm. So no, it is not because of time. If you can't find time to eat enough food, do drills, stretch and recover, and run once per day, sometimes twice you are never going to have the makeup to be a pro anyway. That's just the reality. A pro could be a pro on your time. They just are working on that 0.01% of getting slightly better with all of their time. And because they've embraced their talent and worked hard, they could become as close to becoming a pro or still become a pro with your perceived available time because they are that good. Their foundation is that good. And they prioritize it. They get it done. Mm -hmm. Whether they love it or not, it happens. And a lot of people live a life in that pro stage that they realize they don't love necessarily as they get into it, but it doesn't change the fact that it gets done or it doesn't get done. Do you love your job? No. Do you show up every day regardless of how you feel about going in? Yes. Same thing with successful pros. Being a pro is like upgrading your home gym. If you couldn't do it when there were cobwebs, no lighting, no flooring, just rusty dumbbells, you can't do it when you have the pristine conditions. That's what it does. It makes your comfort and accessibility easier, but it does not light your fire. 
that brand new weight room sits empty after the first week or two if you weren't already a pro mindset. So I'm just not buying it. Preach. And that's me saying, I don't have that. I don't have that drive. I am not a pro mentality. I lived it for probably three to four years, and I do not practice that. Were you any happier then than you are now? Are you any happier now than you were then? Oh, I'm certainly happier now. Isn't that interesting? I had happy, I had some very satisfying and happy moments, but on a minute by minute day, if you pulled me every minute throughout the day, how happy are you, scale of one to 10? My daily by minute by minute average would be on a scale of one to 10, two to three points higher at any given minute than it ever was during that time. The highs were fantastic. But the daily average was pretty mundane. It was pretty mediocre. This is coming from a man who's had an absolute shit running career the last three years. So obviously he's a man <laughs> because of injury, of course, not because you're yeah. terrible. It's just saying a lot about no. having substance and yeah. following up our pacing yourself episode from Tuesday. You uh, you got other things going on that fill your cup, and that's cool. Yeah. Um, okay. That's one of those if you have to ask, you couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Like if you think all you're missing is a pro's time. You wouldn't know what to do at the time. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to handle it. You wouldn't be able to handle the boring monotony of 10 every morning and 10 every night. <laughs> you couldn't do that. You couldn't live J- Tyler. If you can't live Tyler Jaman's life right now, you couldn't live, uh, let's say, the the 10 men elites life who have a sponsor group and they don't have to work. And I see. If you couldn't do it without it, you can't do it with and it. And I see Tyler Jaman's 6 a.m. runs every day and his 7 p.m. runs at night. I see. I see. There's no like not many 10 a.m. or situation. He has a job. He can work from home. You know, you use the word bullshit. You just swore, which makes me feel a little better. I, did. I got two messages already since our, we're recording on a Wednesday. So our training Tuesday's only been out for a day. And I had two people tell me to keep swearing. And I told them, I said, they said, don't bite it. it you know, what you're trying to say loses its emphasis. And then I said, yeah, but we had a you know, we had a heartstring message about a father messaging and saying, I used to listen with my son and I feel like I can't anymore because of the profanities. And that really tugged at my heartstrings. And I told him both this. And he said, swear anyways. <laughs> both of them told me to keep living it. And I'm like, now I'm really conflicted. But anyways, that's my battle right now. You got another one for us? No, move on. I'm- Let's go every other. All right. Let me see what's... That was the longest one we're going to have. That's what you say now. That that was really long. That might be our longest Q&A rant ever. Okay. This is back from August 21st, so we're not doing too bad. Only about two months ago. Uh, <laughs> hey, guys. This is Patrick uh, Guzik. Hey, guys. It's almost November, and for many of us, that means one thing. World's toughest mutter. Recovery question for you. What are some of the best ideas for recovery after an event like WTM in the first 48 hours post-race? IV therapy, cryo, massage, thanks in advance. That's a whole episode one too, see? Mm-hmm. I-, I have a quick answer to that. Yeah, do the quick Ain't one. nothing going to help you, brother. You just need to eat food, try to get yourself to go to bed. All that fancy voodoo stuff might move the needle a percentage, but you got to let metabolic processes take their place. Um, sure, hopping in an ice bath might feel real nice for 20, 30 minutes, but ultimately um, your body's processes really can't be sped up or slowed down that incredibly much. And since you're not trying to recover for another event, I assume that's coming up in the next couple of weeks, just enjoy being off your feet and eating pizza and try to get some sleep. That's what I would say. 
I would say that worrying about that stuff is going to move the needle so small in the grand scheme of things that the juice might not be worth the squeeze. Um, contradict me if you will. What do you think? My answer is going to be eat, sleep, <laughs> drink. There you go. In any order, as often as possible, rinse and repeat. Those other practices have merit. And, and I'm going to do broad strokes here, so you could probably medically contradict me if you really wanted to dive deep. But cryo is basically ice bath on steroids, right? That's all mm-hmm. it is. Ice bath is designed to reduce inflammation and get you back on the field quick. Correct. It's not designed to enhance recovery. It's designed to shortcut recovery so you can go again. After a massive, massive undertaking, like a 24-hour event, you do not want to mask your soreness, your pain, your fatigue, because if you start to feel better, and that's what IV infusion is going to do, that is what cryo is going to do, ice bath, that's what any of these things are going to do, is they are going to make you feel better than you are recovered. Correct. You will start up too soon. And you are doing systemic damage by going 24 hours hard with the pounding you're going to take. And so you want to know it. You, you don't want to mask your pain or anything. You want to live it and soak it in so that you can actually feel when you are ready to work again. So that you're not running your CNS down. You're not running into adrenal fatigue. You're not running into like cellular damage that is not healed. You don't want to surface level. You don't want to hit, pop a bunch of ibuprofen constantly and think, oh, I'm ready to rock. You want to sit in it, stew in it, and eat, drink, maybe gain a little bit of weight. Like, take this time to rejuvenate. If you're, you don't want to shortcut this. Your question was like, I'm going to race again two days later. I'd be like, yep, you know what? Let's Everything. let's cut all the corners, but it's not going to fix your actual, like 10 days later, you're going to be no better or worse off than you were whether you did that stuff or not, in my opinion, from what I've read. It's like a shot of Novocaine to your tooth. It's going to numb it temporarily. And as soon as that shit wears off, you're right back to being in pain. And that's it's exactly kind of how that stuff works. Now, it's nice to have a little pain relief temporarily, but ultimately, it doesn't change your trajectory um, from true recovery. Yeah, and if you have to do those things, do it. But you can't start training again until you're doing it, for lack of better terms, stone sober. Yeah. You've got to feel it for a few days first and then know you're ready to go. But yeah, if you're trying to turn around the next weekend, do everything you can find within the the limits of legality of your sport. Yeah. We had this conversation about the rice method, rest, ice, whatever it was, compression, elevate. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was on a QA, and a and it was like the, the only time you really ice or try to reduce inflammation is if there's quick turnaround. But typically those what we call Band-Aids or Novocaine actually can hinder long-term adaptation and healing because it shortcuts a process that our body very much needs to go through. So those swollen ankles and those stiff hips and that swollen knee is actually trying to heal itself and, and squashing that by reducing the inflammation is actually preventing new real nutrient-dense blood from pooling and and flowing in and out of where it needs to. And so you do that on a systemic level, even with like inflamed muscles and torn apart, like leaving them do their thing will actually long-term help you heal faster. I mean, from my opinion Mm -hmm. and what science has recently showed us in the last decade or two, that's it. Carl Fallish sent me an article on meth rather than on, um, what's the acronym? Rest, uh, uh, rice rather than, is it rest? Meth, huh? Is the last one heat? Yeah, so it's it's either movement or yeah, uh, it's either movement or um, manipulation. But movement, elevation, traction, and heat. Sure. 
for long-term recovery, speeding up recovery, but doing it well and being ready long-term, taking the cold out, adding the warmth in. It's, it was interesting. Uh, look up, I mean, incognito mode, but Google Maps. <laughs> you know what? Okay, now we'll move on. Is I have not had, you're going to hear this, issues with my shins, which have been perpetuously a problem. I'm always managing. I can't run enough because of shin splints. Because And I was putting my legs in ice buckets. I was icing twice a day for years. Guess what I've done since returning from injury this last time? I said, stone cold sober. <laughs> Only in the running front, unfortunately, in the recovery front for a little while there. But point being, I stopped icing all my stuff. I stopped trying to patch job, put little band-aids over things that needed stitches. And I just let it be. And guess what? Everything literally everything has gone away that used to bug me that I iced all the time. Think about that. Mm. That's powerful. It is. Okay. All right. This is a one I've never encountered before from an athlete. All right. Second year doing road races and unbeknownst to me, I was spoiled by social distancing because now that things are back to as they were, I've had stressful starts and I don't know how to mitigate this. Same circumstances each time. There's a ton of elbow jockeying and the pack is so bunched up it makes it hard to see all the potholes and uneven surfaces in the lovely Twin Cities tarmac. It's compounded by having narrow streets at the start and people who are starting off with different pace groups who aren't actually intending on running that pace. They just want to be closer to the front. Uh That is to say, I found it so much more taxing energy with ment- oh, sorry mentally and physically taxing for energy at the start than I am at mid-race at the same pace. I know this is the nature of the beast for lar- lar- larger events, and I want to see what I can change, strategy, all that kind of stuff. Should I set out? Should I keep away from the pace group I want to keep up with? Should I try and start outside of the corral instead of in the center? Any words of wisdom, how to get out of the claustrophobic zone so I can settle into race pace quicker would be appreciated. Well, they're from the Twin Cities. You got to say who it is. I don't know. I would like to know. I always assume people don't want to know. Uh, John Nordstrom. Okay. People want to hear their names. That's people get real excited. Some dopamine hit. I have a message on here that said, "Please don't read my name." Huh. Well, if they don't want us to read, you'll see why when we get to it. If we get to it. Uh, really like that question. To be honest with you, that is a good one. I don't have a great answer. Um, me either. I think you take the Bracken Cracker approach. Uh, if you look at Cracker at, I got to stop that. I'm sorry. Cracker at every start line, he is hugged to the corner on the outside, right next to the rail. So at least he's not getting impinged from both sides. He's in control of one side of him. And I know you do that to get a little elbow room and to ensure you don't get covered from both sides in front and boxed. And so you do that for a reason. Some people like in a 10 K on the track are like, I, I, you know, I, I pulled the outside lane, like, thank God, at least I have control over one side of my body. And so I think you would find some comfort, even if there's rails. I would say the quickest way, whether you are 10 rows back or up front, might be just get to the outside rail and you'll probably run into it. Run on the sidewalk? Get off the course. Nobody's going to yell at you. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But it's tough because there's two types of people. There's the type like me who, thank goodness, there's a massive start. I don't even have to think about my pace for the first three minutes. I get to just pick my way through. My brother and I did a road race where we jumped up on the sidewalk and off like four times in the first quarter mile. Mm-hmm. Weaving in, out, up, around. And it's invigorating to me. It takes my mind off the energy and I just free run and then I get back into it. And then there's the type like this gentleman, John, who it's stressful. 
So yeah, if it's stressful, you have to mitigate that. And maybe you find different events. There are still small events and you work on the strategies on a small scale and then you graduate up to a bigger scale. You can always start with a slower group, but then it's actually worse. It is. So it continues for longer. If you're in a slower group, that whole weaving and picking and and it's like, yeah, the, the easy answer is to say, go start up front or in the first three rows if you belong there. But very few people actually belong there because that will fix your problem. And then you're going to be the problem that you're talking about for others. And you don't want to do that either. So it's a fine line. But I will say in these big events, you often see people cut. As soon as the tape is gone, they cut outside the crowds and start running on the sidewalk unencumbered for the next half mile. And there's no shame in that. That isn't illegal if you're I maybe up front. I doubt it. I don't know as long as you're not cutting corners. But uh, that'd probably be it. That might be worth that juice might be worth the squeeze, the extra five seconds it takes you to cut over if it keeps you relaxed. And if it is chip timed, which I'm assuming these are for you, stand still. Get to the back of the pack. Who cares if you're going to catch them anyway? Stand still. Count to five. Count to ten. And then cross the line. You have a free run, and now you can see your line up through the crowd. All you, The reason I get far to the side is to avoid the nonsense. I only have to focus energy on one spot. I'm usually on the far left. It's my right. I don't have to worry about people behind me clipping me, no one in front of me, and no one on my left. Maybe a little off my hip, but if you get far enough over, there's only one dimension to defend against. And that's the same thing. If you're the last one and you give yourself even a 10-second line, you have no energy focused anywhere but forward, and you can see the pack and you pick your line. That might just be your, your way to start. Your start should be... And you get more comfortable with anything. Once you're more used to See, we take that for granted a little bit because we were collegiate track and cross-country athletes, and cross-country mass starts are chaos. A track, 15 and 800, it's just so chaotic that even like a road race 5K with 10,000 people, yes, it's chaotic, but we just, that's all we knew, so we take it for granted. So it is a stressful situation. I think when the gun goes off, if it's chip time, I would say your goal is to be in the porta potty when that happens. Take your time, wipe extra good. Get out, make sure your pants are on right, and then walk yourself to the start line. If you don't need shoulder rubbing in order to run fast, that you're right, Bracken. That may be your best bet. Lisa and I did that for a half marathon she ran. The start line looked stressful. There were a ton of people. There's a line at the Porta John. They called one minute to the race. You cleared out. I said, let's just go now. We're wearing chips. They said it's chip time. Did that, walked up. The guy said, oh, you're here now, huh? We said, we're here. And he's like, I guess go when you want. We synced up our watches, press start, and then ran. And then you just feed off of an entire, like, I don't know, half mile of people slower than you. You pick them off one by one, but they're spread out now. And all their juice is gone. Mm-hmm. Like they've blown out all their nervous energy. Now they're just static targets rather than throwing elbow. That, that stuff's done. That's done after a minute. Then if you're a real mensch, you can like steal the last podium spot from somebody. They cross the line with their arms up emphatically and then only to realize that you sniped them from behind and they didn't take third. You could be that guy. What do you think of that, Bracken? There you are. All right, next one. I don't have a name for this because it's uh, cut off, unfortunately. This is an email. In the spirit of a QA, uh, one you may want to answer for me directly or if you do a publicly for as long as I can remember – Watching races, they've had pacers. If the athlete who is trying to set a record is so phenomenal, why can't they be in charge of managing their own pace? 
Whether it was Geidi getting her 5K record on the track with the lights, Kipchoge, Pacecar, or Ingebrigtsen, etc., in my mind, it's almost like providing them a slingshot. They're so good. Why would they need a pacer? I agree and disagree at the same time. So I'll start with the negative. I'm going to do the disagree. I have a problem when people are upset with pacers or what they call time trials. Oh, that time doesn't count. It was a time trial. It's just them and their teammates set up to run fast. Raise your hand in the crowd if your lifetime PR came from a time trial. You ever have a real fun time trial where you're like, I got every ounce out of my ability. It's always like, no, it wasn't a race. I didn't have adrenaline. Time trialing is damn hard. Mm-hmm. It's really, really difficult. And having a pacer is really, really difficult too. It shows how great these people are as they can dial in. The hardest 800s I ever ran in my life were trying to follow my teammate who was pacing us through 600 knowing that I was only trying to run fast. It takes a special individual to run fast when you're trying to only run fast. Because you're not racing. You're trying to run fast, and it's actually less. It's less of a boost internally. All the chemicals that are there, they're gone. You don't have that fight or flight. You're just out there trying to race the clock. I think it's very, very difficult. And so I have a beef with people who are like, oh, wave light is too easy. No, it's depressing. You're watching that time move away from you, and the best thing you can do is hang on. So that's the part I disagree with. you have any response to that? Um, I see their point. I understand the logic. It's actually not faulty even in the slightest. Um, we're in the day and age in which, and this will be said more emphatically in a decade or two as well, but like, we are so good. We are so fast. We are so calculated. It takes everything to go right, even for the most talented human in the world, to better any time that has been set out there. And if it means following somebody or a light to stay on pace, your own two feet have carried you from start to finish. And so to take something away like that because of pacing would would also be like... If you argued the opposite of that, I think that would be uh, quite combative, right? Like you couldn't take it away. Like their own two feet covered it. If there's a line, they drew it mm-hmm. with Kipchoge. There was a slipstream created for him. So he had zero mm-hmm. wind resistance and they drew a morality line and as they should have in that situation. But when it comes to a pacer to it's been adopted for since the 50s, since Bannister's record, at least probably before that the mile so this is just like common place and the old records were set with pacers and the new ones were and if you want to call it tradition you will i understand your argument but it's not like a new thing this has been going on since mm-hmm. before you were born so for what that's worth all the old records were set that way too or the majority of them all that being said <clears throat> i'm going to agree with this yeah go ahead it does it is a little off-putting at times mm-hmm. You're not watching a race. You're watching a scripted performance. I still am blown away when the athletes can follow the script because they're not racing someone. They're just performing. And that's really, really difficult to do. But it takes away from it. It does. I think that uh, the proof is in the Olympics and the world championships. You had, who did we have? Jacob Kiplimo and we had Gide, who was just mentioned in there, set 5 and 10K um world records and it did not win the olympics because racing mattered 
they had the highest end potential to get out and hold and hold and hold. And it didn't matter when you ran the rounds and had to show up and sit and kick and run tactics. So the fact that racing still matters, I think, buoys this argument that we don't really just want to sit and watch world records. We want to see races. Mm -hmm. And we'd like to see world records accomplished from time to time. But as a meet organizer, you don't care if there are seven other world record attempts. You want to be able to say, people ran 203 in my marathon. A woman broke 220 in my marathon. And the way to guarantee people don't run and blow up poorly is to have a pace group. And if you call it a pace group rather than a pacer, the argument crumbles. Because every open marathon has pace groups. Mm -hmm. So really, we'd be hypocritical to want to ban it for the pros if everyone who's going out to try to run seven minute pace or eight minute or nine minute has someone holding up a cardboard or a, mm -hmm. like a cardboard sign saying, this is the 730 pace or this is the 310 marathon group. Come run with me. That's what's happening there. They're guaranteeing that people will not run foolishly and blow up. They all could do it alone, but you're more likely to get it wrong alone. So I can see both sides. I just don't like people discrediting the performance because they had a light to follow. It's exponentially more impressive when it isn't a time trial setup. Uh, I will say yes. that that's like, that is the most impressive, I think, performance when it's done in a true race and somebody shoots out in the 5K on lap three and owns it uh, to the finish line. It's fantastic. We saw that in the 10K recently on the women's side, I believe. Um, anyways, question. Um, it's 20, when are the next Olympics? 2024? I'm forgetting. The years are all weird now. Um, next Summer Olympics, 2020. Yeah, next Summer Olympics. All right. You can either have a 5K world record. That eventually will be broken because all records are meant to be broken. Or you can have a 5K Olympic gold medal <clears throat> one time. What are you picking? I am 100% an Olympic gold medal. And this is the dividing line in human mentality. Mm -hmm. You are one or you are the mm -hmm. other. And I am a give me a championship gold every single time. <coughs> Excuse me, which sort of says that maybe you're in the uh, Pacers are immoral, not immoral, but tarnished camp. Because I would be the same way. I would much rather an Olympic yeah. gold medal um, where racing matters. 100%. And I don't enjoy blowouts. Even if it's a spectacular performance. <clears throat> Like, it's fun to watch, but I don't want to see that more often than not. I would rather – I'm in the camp that I loved Matthew Centrowitz's 1,500-meter gold medal in Rio when he ran 350, and people said, that's embarrassing. That's pathetic. That is a, a 407 mile. Are you kidding me? That He should be ashamed. And I thought everyone had the same chance, and he outfoxed everybody. He led from, like, that the is, gun is, on the, in that race. That is racing at its purest, and I love yep. it. However, the only caveat to that, I would say, is give me the world record if I'm first. How many Olympic 1,500-meter um, champions can you remember? Some. Everyone knows Roger Bannister. Yeah. You know, if you were setting the first, like Scott Jurek with his FKTs, Appalachian Trail and whatnot, everyone remembers him. Do you know who the current record holder is? Nope. Even though it's so, 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 so much faster than Scott? No. You either want to be first or I want to be a gold medalist. Fair. Let's create some arbitrary distance on some arbitrary route and be the first back. And there you go. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right. This is a question from Matt Malone, and I answered him. We chatted off podcast via Messenger about this, but it's a relevant question. I'm running an ultra that consists of a six-mile loop and have been given the following information about the loop. 200 feet of vert per loop, 80% trail, 10% gravel, 8% pavement, 2% sand with covered shade, no water crossings, roots. With knowing that, what shoes would you recommend? <laughs> Let's just say it's a marathon distance, but it doesn't matter. He said half marathon and marathon. And, and, and that the question itself doesn't matter. It's the style of question, which is you are doing a mixed terrain race. Which terrain do you use to judge your shoe on? Do you use the shoe that you're going to spend the most time using or the shoe that will not hurt you the most on the most extreme terrain? We've seen this in uh, JFK 50, where Megiddo and Gaudette watch guys run off in the Alpha Fly, get to the section that I believe is on the Appalachian Trail for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And where the guys wearing Alpha Flies who were sponsored Nike guys were cursing mm-hmm. on course because they couldn't stay upright in their shoes and they were rolling like crazy. But then people who got on that bike path at the end were just rolling in their Alpha Flies. Mm-hmm. So the question is, if you could only pick one, and the smart move there was to run trail until you got to the bike path, swap into some quick-laced super shoes, and then fly, because it's a 50-mile race, you have time. But if you only had one shoe, do you prep for the extreme end of the course or the majority of the course? Does he mention technicality of the trail? No, and I don't think it matters in this. Let's say there is 5% of the course is extremely technical. The rest is smooth trail, some is pavement, some sand. How would you go about approaching? And we do this all the time with courses. This, there's going to be hard pack. There's going to be rock. There's going to be scree. There's going to be mud. Which one do you well, I, care about the I'm most? I'm assuming that multi-lap, it's going to be more than two, probably three, four exponential. So I'm assuming yes. this is an endurance event. Um, I have a lot of experience running in this shoe on concrete and on trails. Um, dude, slap a speed goat five on my feet and let me roll that handles so well on concrete. It handles very well, stays nice and tight to your foot on technical. The five is lower profile, less prone to ankle rolling. Um, if you want to crank that up a notch, you could very much get away with the Hoka Tecton X as well. Um, as far as its transfer plus the carbon plate, maybe a little forward mm-hmm. propulsion, but you're going to, in my eyes, you're going to pick more of a shoe, especially with the roads and the harder stuff in there. You're going to want to save the legs. Um, but I'm not going to want something with too much of a stack height. Um, for me, easy answer, speed goat five all day or day. Um, mm-hmm. because it's just, it's aggressive, but not too aggressive. The lugs are laid out in which they're flat enough where you don't feel them on pavement. Um, and if the sand is only 2%, like I don't need deep lugs or a wide splay to help me push. So that would be, those would be my two. I'd probably go speed, go five. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't argue with that. I think that you have to find out. I think it's an equation. It, a super shoe, for example, your alpha fly versus your speed goat per mile. How much faster are you? Let's say at threshold effort on a paved bike path. In the Alpha Fly versus the Speed Goat, how many seconds per mile? Oh, probably. I'm going to say a full ten at least. Yeah, I'll say ten to twenty, mm-hmm. depending. If, I mean, the faster you go, the fa- the more it's going to help. Yeah. But at threshold, I think yeah, I'd be a tw- maybe fifteen. Mm-hmm. 
10 to 15 seconds slower in the speed just the, the whether it's even the, just the foam in that shoe even if it wasn't carbon plated in the design of, and the weight yeah, yeah all of it yeah i'd say at least 10 yeah so if you're if you're going to gain 15 seconds per mile on the hard pack let's say 10 10 seconds per mile on the hard pack then how much are you going to lose wearing an alpha fly on the trail part and it's an equation and if it balances out then you choose the shoe that you're just more confident taking that distance and being more economical in. If you're the same pace in two different shoes, the one that feels better is the one you take. However, if you have a stream crossing or if you have mud, suddenly you're not gaining 10 seconds per mile in the alpha anymore. Mm -hmm. I haven't taken those through mud, but I can't imagine they perform the same afterwards. Mm. I have a tough time when the, like, the cement's wet sometimes, the way they push off, yeah. for example. Yeah. So suddenly that's not the shoe anymore. So it's an equation in my mind. Yep. Is there a section you literally can't get through? And if there's not, then it's just where does the time versus energy lie? And more often than not, I believe that comfort and stability matter more than grip. Oh, yeah. Right up until it's super nasty. And if it's super nasty, then you're not having this conversation anyway. Yeah. But I think most road shoes can handle smooth trail but not technical, but most technical or smooth trail shoes can handle road. So when in doubt, having the more stable shoe is probably the better choice. Do you know that in my original Evo Speed Goat, I bought them in 2019 in the winter? My original Evo Speed Goat, I still take on a road run about once a week right now because the foam, like it came out of the box a week ago, the tread hasn't gone anywhere it's the most this this I could I might run in the old Evo Speed Goat. It is the most bizarre. Like a lot of Hoka's, like some are designed where they just mm -hmm. they're great and then they break down. I think they stopped making the Evo Speed Goat because they realized they built an indestructible shoe that they're going to make no money on because people are going to keep them forever. Have you known this about mm -hmm. that? I, the shoe is incredible. I can't tell you how many miles I put on it. And you look at it, you put it on. It's like the day I bought it, and I have Foam thousand miles in it, untouched on mine. Foam is untouched. The lugs are getting worn down, and they're just slick. The slick lugs. I so I don't take it on on any sort of technical trail. Mm. But my upper is starting to peel. Like the foam and the that matrix upper are actually starting to decouple oh, a little bit mind. or deglove. It's peeling off. I ran it. mine through the wash machine. Cleaned them up real nice. Stuff looks like the day I got them. Anyways, just this. But yeah, I, I use mine from time to time on real smooth trail. Just as a daily trainer. Sure. All right. Um, my turn. Do it. Uh, Ruth Soderberg says, question for your next podcast. While watching the UTMB, Coke was the, in quotes, ultra drink of choice for the majority of the athletes who came into the Cormier aid station. Why is Coke the drink of choice for ultra runners? Can you please explain the importance and reasoning as to why many of these athletes chose to drink Coke? Thanks, Ruth and Britton. I mean, I can't give you an importance reason that makes any amount of sense outside of it's the way it's always been done in the ultra world and people aren't deviating from that. It's always going to be at ultras and people who are comfortable with it just know it's going to work for them. Is it any better than anything else? I really don't believe so. In fact, I believe it can be detrimental to some people, but no, it's just, 
it's just habit, I think. Look at like from a pure like macro nutrition label standpoint, you grab a goo and it has 50 milligrams of caffeine in it and a hundred calories, mostly from simple carbohydrates. Pour a cup of Coke, drink it, 100 to 150 calories, 50 to 70 grams of milligrams of caffeine on paper. It's very much like what's in those packets that you're squeezing into your mouth, except you want some liquid because you're thirsty. So people drink it down, burp it out a little bit. It's a nice little treat they look forward to. But ultimately, like on a cellular level and like metabolic processes on paper, yes, different ingredients, but same or similar macros plus the caffeine. And so it's like it's really a goo that's liquid. I mean, it starts as a syrup that you could easily put into a goo packet. It just, they just bubble it up and put some water in it. It's literally a goo. Yeah. yeah. And I support all that. I think it's actually a little less caffeine. I think it's more like in the thirties. Uh, is it? I could be wrong on that. A 12 ounce Coke. I thought I checked the last flight I was on. All right, let's guess. So I'll look it up real quick. I'm going to say 39. A 12 ounce Coke. 12 ounce is that what we're going with. 12 ounce. I'm going to say. F- Can of Coke. I'm going to say 57. 12 ounce Coke caffeine. The answer is, damn you, 34. Screw off, Bracken. I I checked when we flew back or to Ireland, one of the two. I checked just out of curiosity. I'm guessing I've been looking at bottles. I thought it was higher as well. Okay, well, thanks for making me feel better. You're right. I agree on, on, on all of that. Um it's there's nothing special to it and some people like it calms your stomach the fizz and then other people are like no it's got to be flat coke so people can't even uh, agree on that it's just what was used it was a precursor to tailwind it was a precursor to sustain elite it was the non sign it was like chocolate milk the non-scientific thing that happened to check a lot of the boxes that scientifically you would want in a recovery drink for chocolate milk or in a performance drink with coke um it's just it's, it almost feels like the ultra thing to do, and so you do it. I don't. I don't have any use for that. I have the actual actual needs that I want dialed in with Tailwind, so I don't need it, but it's really no different. And I think for some people, it's the taste. It tastes. It reminds you of something other than than goos and gels and, and, misery. and performance-based sports yeah. drinks. Yeah. So I don't know. When I go for long runs. Maybe it's, it's just the dessert version. When I go for long runs at Afton, I'll pack a little cooler and I don't, I can drink my water room temp. I can drink her air temp, but I put one regular Coke in there and it is the most absolute treat when everything is all done to have my cold Coke mm-hmm. on the way home. It's just something about that. It's got that little bitterness to it, which we like, like a, like that response. Like some people take mustard packets and things and that's an extreme, but a Coke has that little bit of like, you know, makes your... Whatever that word is, I feel like it's just a satisfying thing in the middle of a run. That's all. I didn't know that about you. Didn't know that. Yep. All right, we got Jabari House in the house. Hey, yo. I'm planning on doing my first trail half marathon in early October, and eight weeks from there, High Rocks in late November. We're a little late. Can you start that again? Sorry, what? Start that over. Jabari's going to do his first trail half marathon in early October, so probably right around now. And then my, and then I'm going to do high rocks in late November. Mm-hmm. My goal for the half is just completion and won't start my training block until late July. High rocks won't be till early August. How do I balance these blocks and keep my strength gains? So Jabari, obviously we're too late for you. 
but we can address this for anyone else. Half marathon in the buildup to a high rocks with the goal of completion for the half marathon, not competing all out. Go ahead. Start. Well, I would say then that's, that's your, your driving force there is you prep the entire time for high rocks and you have a run emphasis all the way through the end of the half marathon. And then you switch into a more station based emphasis after that. If you're trying to compete, you'd have to balance it a little differently. But if you're going for completion, a lot of the things you do for high rocks compromise running at about marathon pace, but it's like 10 K effort. That's higher. That's half marathon specific. A lot of lunging and single leg work, sled work, that's staying power on the trails, especially with Hills. So they complement each other. Well, especially if you're not trying to PR your half marathon. Yeah, just don't compartment and keep lifting. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. Is make sure your your strength foundation is is staying put and not like trying to like oh I got to like leave it alone for the half marathon and then reimplement. Um, I wouldn't even change a thing about like pure strength work, high rocks prep. Uh, maybe some of that Metcon style more specific. You you may, may be able to implement later, but just having a good strength and functional foundation to start laying on that specific work after the half marathon, and even maybe sprinkling in one of those workouts every two weeks, just so that right when it's finished, you can jump right in without a big surprise to your body. But yeah, if, if he's, if completion is the goal and high rocks performance matters, easy answer. You could do complete high rocks training and just make sure you get in like a road run or a run on similar terrain on the weekends, a long run and be just fine. I mean, high rocks is between 60 and 90 minutes for most people yep. of nonstop go muscle. That's a, that's a good precursor to, to a half marathon. Yep. Second question. I'm looking ahead to 2023 and planning to earn some Spartan trifecta. My race dates for next year have been released. Some, some race dates have been released and there is an, a Spartan weekend near me that is scheduled. I usually stick to the rule of one race every four weeks. However, due to fuel costs, it would make economic sense to race back to back days. I don't have the rest of this. If I choose my strategy is to do the beast first and then the super, it's got to be then the sprint. So I don't have the rest of it <laughs> screenshot. So we get to guess what is he asking? He wants to do the trifecta. He's going to do the beast first, then super, then sprint. Is that the way you would order your races or no? In separate weekends. How would He's you not trying to it? do a trifecta in one weekend because then that's the only option. Yeah, I don't believe so. Um, a Spartan weekend near me that is scheduled. So I assume one's a sprint super and the other one's a beast weekend. Oh, you just got to take what's given to you. I mean, if you train for the beast first, that's fine because stay power is king. So get ready for that and it will bleed nicely into your super and sprint. If it's the other way around, that's fine too, depending on how far apart they are. But it sounds like they're very close from what you are, no matter what the order, it sounds like they're close in time due to travel. Like that's the conundrum here, which means you're training for a beast. And you will nail your super and sprint. So there's no problem there. It's just your longest distance is what has to take priority in your training decisions. And again, my guess is these are within a month of each other or close proximity. So beast wins. Easy as that. What do you think? We just did an episode on this. Train long to race short. Mm -hmm. Prep for that beast. Heck, prep for an ultra beast and race down. You can always do short little sims and time trials along the way. 24-hour race. And that's a bit much, but it worked for Tyler. Did. <laughs> I like that question. I think we got the question. Yeah. Um, Isaac Anderson. No, Isaac Sanderson. 
Uh, hey, KB, I've been listening in for a few months now as I begin my running OCR career. The last Training Tuesday episode reminded me of a quote I heard when I started training this past winter, and I thought I'd pass it along in case you two hadn't heard it. Amateurs slash beginners make decisions based on their feelings. Professionals, veterans make them based on commitments they've made. That doesn't echo what we had talked about earlier. Oh, that's it. Should have used that quote to open up the episode. That's better than what we said. Thanks for all the content you put out. It's been a great resource for me in my first year training, specifically for running. Um, no question, I guess so. Yeah. Timely. Yeah, that echoes. With pros, it just is. Should I say it again? Yeah, say it one more time for Amateurs us. and beginners make decisions based on their feelings. Professionals and veterans make them based on commitments they've made. Boom. Like it. Thank you for that, Isaac. Kirk, I had to run the other day. I had a, thre a threshold workout to do, and I was intending to do it and intending to do it and intending to do it, and we had a child issue. Hmm. And I had to just, the child was emotional and was not going to have a good bedtime unless she's just dependent on contact. So I said, all right, I'm going to go up there and lay down with her. And I just felt my workout slipping away. I thought, well, shoot, guess I'm going to have to reshuffle my week. And as I was laying there, I just gave up on the workout and I was listening to an audiobook. And then I stopped and I paused it. And I thought I was doing this exact same thing last summer, waiting for the kids to fall asleep so I could go downstairs, take my pre-workout and drive out to, to Illinois and run a midnight OCR race, mm -hmm. like a 10 PM OCR race. And I was so fired <clears throat> up for that because that's what it was to do. And I was laying there, I realized, what's different other than my mindset? A night workout, a night, there is no difference. One I was looking forward to, the other one I had to do. I have to get this in, but the other one I get to do it. And that was it right there. One was an emotional decision, the other one was just something I've committed to. You loved that race. And too, I was luckily, you? it was fantastic. Yeah. I, and I, I kind of laid an egg, but it was fun. Yeah. But the, I was so revved up for it, it was fun driving there in, in the dark and realizing the world's going to sleep and I'm about to go rip it up. This is awesome. Hey, there's nothing better than taking 300 milligrams of caffeine at 1130 at night. That's a smart Ooh. decision right there. That's correct. <laughs> Fire that baby up. And luckily I was able to, in that moment, change my mind. Like, all right, let's approach this temple that same way. <clears throat> all right. I'm kind of fired up to go run an, a pitch black threshold run. And it was great. And in the past, I haven't always done that. I'll usually, if I'm in bed with the kids, that's it. Sometimes I'll even just fall asleep. But that that was the difference right there. One was like, uh, and the other one's like, well, this is this is what it is. Let's go do it. This is a tangent, and I agree with you, by the I way. Like tangents, Kirk. So I got off an athlete call today, and I'm not going to say his name because it was so – when we discovered what this issue was, it really – it made me chuckle like belly laugh. So he messages me, says, we got to talk. He ran the, he's European, he ran the Euro champs and in his mind laid an egg. He should have been a podium contender, maybe even win. He took X, doesn't matter. Top 10, but not where he wanted. And I'm like, you were feeling good. We've done everything right. We've nailed training. You've had more confidence than ever. And he went out there and in his mind, shit the bed. And he, we needed to talk it out and figure out what happened. <laughs> Turns out, his tummy, he didn't really feel like eating much in the morning. And so he's had caffeine and coffee every single day of his life. And he just like 
didn't drink any the morning of the race. Just forgot that step. And it didn't occur to him until we were talking it through. And I'm like, we're 25 minutes deep. And I'm like, I am i don't know what to tell you, man. I can't figure this out. This must be one of those fluke things that just happens sometimes and you just need to move on. And he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> didn't have his two cups of coffee. What would that do to you if you were accustomed to working out on caffeine every single time? I mean, what would any substance withdrawal be <laughs> about what would that be? Normal Ugh. breakfast before a race, 4 to 5 a.m.? Now you're two to three hours into withdrawal. What's your body going to feel like? It just made <laughs> If you me, haven't missed a day in years? It made me feel oh. so bad for him and also made me feel so much better at the same time. I'm trying to figure out what went wrong. He's like, my legs were just uh, dead. I had no energy. Sluggish from the gun. It's like I was a different person out there. It's like, I think you were actually a different person out there. Anyways, side story. Yeah. How did withdrawal symptoms feel while racing a half marathon? <laughs> Not great. Yeah, tough. Anyways, thought that was funny. Um, All right, here's here's a quick yeah. one from Denise. I think you've covered this, but hit it again, please. That's not what she said, but essentially. Are all the massage guns and compression air boots really worth the price? Do they really help with recovery for runners? Or are they just fancy tech that's a waste of money? I see them everywhere, and I'm curious your thoughts. I've never used a pair in my entire life. I know theory. I've no, no first-hand experience, so that's the end of my answer. And I know you have experience. Well, I own air boots, and I've had a massage gun in the house that we've used. I think <clears throat> that in terms of actually feeling different, the massage gun actually does more. And it could be a placebo, but it, I, you can actually feel better after using it. There's a palpable feeling. I can't say that the next day you're any better, but in that moment, you feel better. Uh, the boots, I actually think it's just a, it kickstarts the recovery train. You throw on the boots and you're more likely to hydrate while using them and stretch afterwards. And it's a, it's a link in the chain. I like them more for prepping for a workout. Pop some pre-workout, throw the boots on for 15 minutes, really get my legs just like, it's a... It's a warm up to my warm up. It engages like this is go time. It's quality session day. This is what we're doing. So I think that they are way closer to placebo than to necessary tool. But we're talking the small, small, small percentages of percentages of what they can help with. Well, I feel like boots are like the equivalent of ice and massage gun is the equivalent of heat. Of course you feel better. You're loosening up and pounding fascia, drawing blood flow with the gun to certain areas, promoting more interaction between that particular part of your body and metabolic processes. And the boots are kind of like non-cold ice, right? They're in a sense, they're squeezing, moving in, but very, the, the gun's a very compression movement, right? Yeah, they're advanced compression socks. So if you're trying to quick turn around, throw those boots on. Sure, if you got a back-to-back -back races, there's validity there, I think. An ice bath between back-to-back -back races that night might make sense. Might not help you long-term, but might help you freshen up for the next day where that massage gun might promote more long-term, I would say, benefit, right? Maybe. But I think we're... Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. But no, no, nothing. There is no tool that someone can sell you for recovery that's required for a, for a runner. And it's, if you can have, uh, if you can find papers online that argue its effectiveness, then that's probably all you need to know. 
That means it works for some people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work for some. It's probably how you perceive it. The things like super shoes or EPO, no one argues that it doesn't work. Right. A few people argue that it doesn't work, but the inarguable things everyone is aware of, the ones that they go back and forth on, it's really just personal preference. I agree. Um, Next one, Sammy Owens. It's a little longer one. And we um, may have covered this in a previous episode, but uh, it's titled Aging Athlete and First Ultra. Uh, hey guys, love the podcast and have been listening since day one. Hands down, The Running Public is my favorite podcast. You're so much fun to listen to. I guess I, well, thank you. I could have, should I skip the buttering up? Um, thank you. No, it's just end Thank there. you, Sammy. Um, okay. Oh, so I also subscribe to The Running Public Training Plan, though I admit I don't follow it religiously. Mostly I see it as a way I can support you guys. Awesome. All right. Background. We appreciate it. I'm that. getting old. I'm 47 years old, full-time working mom of two teens. An 18 and 17 year old. For reference, I've been running recreationally for 25 years. I recently signed up for my first 50K scheduled for April. It's about 32 weeks out. All right. I'm struggling to figure out how to structure training for this ultra. I strength train three times per week. Right now, a uh, decently equipped home gym, and I'm trying to run three to four days a week. The 50K I'm doing is near St. Louis and will be two loops that have cumulative elevation gain of 3,400 feet. And I have a hard time judging if that's a lot of gain or not. Should I be scared of this amount of gain? I relate to y'all when it comes to lack of hills and mountains to run in. I'm in North Louisiana where it's hot, humid, and flat. I'm fully aware that I need to increase my running, but then I listen to your Aging Athlete podcast and wonder if I'm better served getting on my Echo bike for at least one of my aerobic days each week. Bottom line, I think I need to put in a lot more hay in the barn, but I'm scared of getting injured as I have a history of low back problems and some ankle issues. She goes on to say thanks. <clears throat> There's a This is a, a complex question you ask, actually, because... The key to running as long as the 50K, 3,400 feet of gain, roughly 100 feet per mile does not sound like a lot, but it adds up. And the biggest thing you need is resistance to impact, whether it's flat or it's hilly. You need to be able to pound over, over, over four, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know how long, many hours. And so working your aerobic capabilities is absolutely necessary on the echo bike, but building up that resistance to impact is going to have a more direct effect on your ability to perform, mm-hmm. especially the second half of the race. If you're afraid of injury, which is understandable, I would be too. You can't run the race if you're injured. Um, then I'd put a heavy emphasis on lower body strength work in conjunction with your running and then get your extra aerobic time on the echo bike. That's fine. But this is going to be a resistance to impact issue for you, whether it's flat or up or downhill. 3,400 feet is going to be enough, considering your training grounds, to put a significant damage to your body. Zero feet of gain and loss over 31 miles is going to put a significant damage to your body from all the pounding. So um, I would highly encourage you in a smart way to try to increase, even if it's one extra long run every three weeks. I don't care if it's that infrequent, but that's what's going to bite you in this if anything does. I'm sure your aerobic capabilities are going to be great. It's going to be the legs are going to go to crap on you. So not telling you to push the needle because I don't want to end up hurt, but I think that's the biggest key to something like this for the first time is ability to take that damage um, that you can't really get on an echo bike. I hate to say it. Love it. Love it. I use it all the time. But what's your take? Yeah, my take is that the echo bike is as much as it's our favorite piece of equipment, there are two things it cannot do. It cannot work on your running stride and it cannot work on impact. Those are its two biggest drawbacks and they're self-evident. 
It's understood. So yeah, use it as a tool, get extra volume through there. Fantastic. Is 3,400 feet a lot? Well, to some people, that might as well be 34,000 feet. And to some people, they will not even notice that amount of vert. It really comes down to how much you train. And it sounds like with where you live, you don't run a lot of hills. So this is this would be one time where I would say it's time to race sim. I would set up half the distance of your race. I would, if you can, get on that exact loop and do one loop. And that's all you need to know. Run 15 to 16 miles with 1,600 feet of vert, 1,700 feet of vert, and see how that feels. If you are not sore, if you are not breaking down during, by the time you're done with your training block, you're going to be just fine. But if you notice those hills and it is causing issues in your quads already, then you know what it is. And I think that you'll probably find that 3,400 feet is plenty. Mm -hmm. So you have to prep it like you are running those hills and that's all that matters. What's your advice on like, oh, I don't know, four to six weeks out going in a back-to-back day one, do the loop, go back day two, do the loop, something like that. You think that would be smart for this person? Yeah, I would build up if injury is a potential for you. I mean, it's a potential for everyone. But if you think you're predisposed to injury, then you have to find ways to uh, take some damage in a safe way. And so where some people might just run that type of descent over and over and over, you might have to do split that in half. Spend half your time maybe going downstairs in a way that really just hits your quads, but it's not rocking your hips or your body. And then the other 50% of the time running some actual stride downhills. But I, I think that's all in the details. I think broad strokes is you have to go in preparing for for it to be a real hill race. But yeah, get some time trials in. I like it. Do you have more? Yeah. No, but this this is this isn't a pimp our product. This is the time to find a someone and do a do a call with them where you bounce ideas off them. Yeah. You're far enough out that you have a lot of time to prep. Find someone to do a consult with or just find someone who's a sounding board and get some ideas on how to actually set this up. Cuz it'll be very specific to what you have access to with your gym, with your terrain, uh bridges, staircases, hills, however you're going to set it up. It's it's just going to start getting pretty personal. So it's worth finding someone to chat that through with. Yeah. Good point. All right. Here's a question from a woman who would prefer not to be named. How do you train through major life stress? Single mom with a special needs kiddo means my life is usually stressful, but my 14-year-old OD'd three weeks ago and has been recovering since, so it's been a whole new level of stress. I lived in the hospital for four days and then driving back and forth two hours to visit while while during inpatient care. He's been released and started back school, so schedule was crazy for a few weeks. Sorry to overshare, but I'm trying to give context of level of stress. I'm training for a 50-miler in December with plans to still run it, as running and lifting are 100% needed for my mental health. But I just seem to have zero energy, and my workouts runs have been garbage. My sleep is definitely off as well. Mm. I messaged with her and gave her my thoughts right away, but... This kind of thing happens every day across this world, and someone listening will get something out of this. I thought it was worth discussing. Yeah. Uh, sorry to hear that, uh, whoever this person is. Yeah. Um, you know what's interesting in this? This, may, this is my first knee-jerk reaction as soon as you got the first sentence is 
and this is to go show how people are wired differently. How do you not train through this? Because for me, it's my center point, right? It's like, I need, I need this for my mental health. Not everybody does. I understand that Mm -hmm. if racing was taken away from me today, I mean, I've been training for like five months. I haven't raced and I'm doing it because mostly, you know, lots of reasons, but to go beyond that knee jerk first reaction is, um, this is the point in time. And she did state, sorry to cut you off. She did state that she needs to run and lift. Okay. Like that's her coping, but she has no energy, right? And she's too fatigued. Yeah, and that wasn't an insensitive reaction for me. That's just like where my brain goes, like God, I, I could right. use a run more than any time, right? I could use it, whether I have the energy for it or not. But what I think in that time, and it's okay because guess what? I've done this. I did this last fall bracket, and it worked out really well. I shifted from training to exercising. That simple. Forget the training plan. Forget metrics. Forget everything. Put your shoes on when you can. Get your sweat going when you can. Forget trying to hit anything specific. Give the energy to put your shoes on. Get out the door. Maybe it'll come to you or maybe you'll walk home crying. I don't know, and it's okay. You stop training and you start exercising, and it's rare that we promote that, but this is the time in which getting something in with it has no purpose. If you go run so hard until your legs give out every day for a week and it helps you get through, great. If you run so slow you're embarrassed to be seen running that slow because that's all you have in you, that's okay too, but you ditch training and you start exercising until some circumstance changes. That's my advice. That's essentially what I told her. Forget a training plan, forget a progression. What you can do that day is what you accept that day. If you, if you are sitting there like, I can't even fathom running, but I could probably lift, go lift. If you feel like you can jog, go jog. And if the inspiration's like if you're just crying and running and you just feel like hammering, go hammer until your feet fall off. You know, whatever hits you in that moment, whatever you can access is what you take that day. You take what they give you. And that that will lead to better scripted training down the road. But that's not the point now. And the other thing is and you've talked about this more than I have on this podcast, but stress is stress. There is stress from intense workouts and there is life stress. And when you're talking stress response in your body, your body doesn't care. You can only stack so much stress on. And so who cares if you're hitting intervals right now? You're getting life stress. It doesn't help your fitness one bit. But trying to do things that will help your fitness will negatively impact the way your body can regenerate after the stress that's already there. So you can't really help yourself now. You can avoid hurting yourself in the most helpful possible way. Like lifting. If you can't lift hard, go do easy strength. Follow the easy strength program for a month. It takes like 25 minutes and no energy. You could do it asleep. And eventually you're going to find yourself loading more plates one day. So yeah, you just take what the defense gives you for a bit until you can get back above water. I like that. Science shows us that as little as 30-minute run three times a week can help at aerobic effort, recovery effort, can have you maintain all the hard-earned fitness that you've worked for as far as aerobic potential. You're going to lose a little resistance to impact and all of those things. But as far as aerobic capabilities, as little as 30 minutes three times a week at a recovery heart rate is going to help you maintain your high-end cardiac potential. And that is a soft pillow to sleep on when you're going through times of strife and can't get in your training like you would like. 
Christ, if you found a way to run 30 minutes three times a week, and even if it was easy because you're so dog tired, aerobically, nothing physiologically has changed in your body. Now, if you do that for months in a row, of course, that's going to impact. But you can get away with it for up to three weeks. That's what, what it shows. So keep that in mind. Like, don't not all is lost is what I'm getting at. So. I have two more things I do want to say on this because someone needs to hear this. The first is that in this time, be selfish and lean on the people around you. This is the time where, you know, if Kirk lived near me, I would have to say, Kirk, you just got to get me out two times per week. Just show up at my door, please, on Saturday and take me to a trail. And Kirk would do that Mm -hmm. because it's very little stress on his life to do something like that. He's going to work out either way, but it's the difference maybe between me running and not running. Mm -hmm. And once you're having one person that you're accountable to, even if it just gets you out the door and you're feeling terrible, it's hard to have a horrific run with a buddy. Especially if you're running easy, you can have a really bad, I've had some bad runs with Kirk cause he put me into the ground, but when they're there as basically an emotional support friend, they're not going to put you into the ground, right? That's, that's, that's left. That's, that's, that's not an option. So lean on the people around you. And then the second is you have to understand, and I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching at everyone. You have to understand that other people's life stress is harder to deal with than your own life stress. When you are a caretaker, when you're responsible for children, for parents, for loved ones, when they go through something bad, it's harder for you than if you were going through it. It may not ever be quite as sharp, but you have a greater weight because you play the guilt game and you don't know when they're feeling a little better inside. When it's your own stress, you ebb and flow. When it's their stress, you constantly worry. Because you don't know those little glimmers of daylight they have. You don't like say like, oh, okay, they're feeling better for the next hour and a half. I'm fine. No, you stay stressed the whole time. Like your kid sick is worse than you sick. Your partner depressed is sometimes worse than you depressed in a different way. So when it's someone else's stress, you have to take that into account and protect yourself even more. And then you almost go on infant schedule. When they're asleep, you crash and go to sleep. That's your permission. When they're feeling good, you work out too. Like you, you almost have to cycle with them because it's the only way to get yourself through days sometimes. So little small little soapbox PSA there that people sometimes need to hear. It's good advice. I hope everything's going okay over there. Me too. Um, I don't know if we read this one or not because the start of this rings a bell, but she may not be the first to experience this. Uh, Jennifer Child says, I'm going to send this again because it might have gotten lost. Does that ring a bell already? Did we do one where somebody told us we forgot about them? More than once, yeah. yeah. Okay. Training Tuesday on excuses was great. And during it, Bracken touched on a reliance on caffeine. I'm on the other side of stimulants and supplements. I don't take any other than some gummies, waffles, or tailwind on longer workouts or races. I don't drink coffee and get all my macros and nutrients from regular food. I'm new to training in endurance sports, three years, and wondering if there are some nutrition products, categories worth exploring, or is it better to stay beholden to nothing specific? We haven't answered this, but it's a great question. Yeah. It, it's a, go ahead. <laughs> no, you can, you have something I, profound. I can feel it. No, it's not profound. I'm, I'm wishy-washy. It's really hard to open the door to reliance to anyone. A caffeine's a great thing, but we all were good without it. Yep. And then we were slightly a little better with it for a short period of time. And now we're worse without it. 
like high school me, college me, no stimulant. I PR'd every year, mm-hmm. just fine. Never struggled for energy throughout life. I was also young. When you start using any sort of stimulant, you have that initial boost and now your baseline's moved higher and eventually you need it. So yes, it is worth experimenting with for race performance, but is it worth losing your, basically your chemical innocence? Is it worth maybe giving up on that rolling out of bed, feeling great feeling? If I had to go back, Kirk, I don't know what I would do. I can't say for sure. Absolutely. I would start over on the caffeine train because I can't say for sure. I would. I am going to go out on a limb here and say that you will perform better than you ever have. If you did start on something like caffeine, caffeine is going to be the focus of this for me because caffeine has been proven to be such an igniter Mm -hmm. for me. The first time I took a good pre-workout, I had the most lightweight fluid run that I can ever recall having. It was a 5-5 fartlek, 5 on, 5 off. And I don't remember even feeling fatigued until 90 minutes, and that's because I crushed it. It was a feeling I'd never had before, ever. Well, then you want that feeling that next Tuesday, and then you want it on Thursday, mm-hmm. and then you and, and you crave just like an addict. You just want that feeling. That's why we do the things. We want to feel invincible, and it's going to make you feel invincible. I'll guarantee it. Might make you go to the bathroom about twenty minutes in, but that's besides the point. The problem is if you can practice self restraint with a stimulant like caffeine. Well, I only take it once every two weeks before a big workout when I'm not feeling up to it, and I only take it before races. You will perform better. You absolutely will run and have an experience in which like like 19 out of 20 times, you're going to note a difference. But the trap is a trap. I mean, I am so reliant on my two cups of coffee in the morning and then a second hit in the afternoon on busy days. It's like ridiculous. Now I'm just using it to get back to baseline because it's become my routine. It's negligible at this point. But I would say if it's used correctly, microdosed, as Anthony Kunkel might say, it is a fantastic stimulant that will make you faster and better. I, I just think it will. And then you have to play that side of the coin bracket. Well, if it makes me better for that workout and I can work harder and longer, will that move my VO2 max needle just a little bit? And if I use it appropriately, will my ceiling get risen without a reliance on the stimulant to just go out and do my regular runs? And then you can play yeah. a whole mind game. I really believe it makes you better if it's used correctly. It's making me no There's better. There's really no doubt. It's making me no better today because I use it so much. It's just, I'm getting back to baseline. But Scientifically, there's no debate. It gives you better endurance. It's a fact. It allows you to stay tougher longer. It's a fact. It, it, it just is. I started up using caffeine during COVID. You didn't use it before COVID? Nope. Never. I mean, not with regularity. I mean, never... Because I'd never drink coffee in my life. I wasn't a soda drinker or pop, depending on where you live and mispronounce things. And I didn't really do pre-workout. I had that. I had Perform Elite for maybe like starting 2019, 2018 maybe. But it was so strange to me that I could only use like a third of a scoop because I hadn't had caffeine before. And I would basically only use it before races. What did it do to you? 100 milligrams of caffeine Just roughly. L- freaking lit me up did you feel good and race well on it did you feel like energy system wise at least 
Well, this was weird because this was the start of my, I mean, during that time was Bracken coming back from things. That was hamstring time. And then that was the beginning of the knee. And I raced fine sometimes, but I never was super fit. So it was always like trying to guess. So I didn't get deep, deep into it. I probably used it. I don't know. Once a week maximum during 2019. And in 2018, I probably used it 10 times. Mm -hmm. And then, or maybe that was 18. And then starting in 2020, after knee surgery, prepping for Tennessee Mile, I used it every morning workout that I met Ross. I'd have caffeine to get up and get going because we were getting up at like 440, which to me was not in my wheelhouse at the time. And so I'd have a little bit every morning and I felt like a rock star. And that just started the ball. Mm -hmm. And to the point where twice in the past year, I've detoxed caffeine just to to get myself feeling normal and good again. So again, if you were a machine and you could just program yourself in to only take it on the big days in races, it's a no brainer. See, it's just, can you be trusted? And I'll asterisk that by saying not on the big days and races on the big days in which it's been a day, like on the big day in which you didn't get enough sleep the night before on the big day in which you're just, a little fatigued from something and you're like, but it has to happen today. It's like not every big day. Oh, it's Tuesday. I take it. It's like, it's Tuesday and I'm compromised. It will. Oh yeah. I'm by big days. I meant like race sims and sure. long quality sessions once a month, like only <laughs> the big needle movers where you're actually trying to feel the way you're going to feel on race day. And I want my gut to be able to for sure handle this. Yeah. And I need to know when I time my bathroom breaks. I'm talking race sim days. I think best case scenario would be 200 milligrams, give or take, depending on your size, once or twice a week. And, it, and you have zero milligrams of caffeine at any time in between. I think you could, with some regularity, predict that you will feel better on it. But even that may be getting too much as far as de developing a reliance on it. I might go sober October here, Kirk. It's already the of caffeine. 12th since when we're starting this, or recording this. Yeah, but how long does it take to detox from caffeine? It's debatable, three to nine say days. as little as four to seven days. Two full weeks, two and a half. You're going to be a real treat on the podcast recordings coming up. <laughs> if Bracken sounds... I'm saying it. I'm, I'm, we need a better sound. It is said. It is spoken. It is in stone now. We're doing it. Sober October. No caffeine the rest of October. Not me. I'm not committing to that. It's the dumbest thing I ever heard. Oh, I got to check and see if this race I'm going to do is enough. No, no. He said it. It's Wednesday the 12th. I don't know if he's committing to Friday the 14th or Wednesday the 12th. We're, we're recording on Wednesday the 12th. Lisa, don't listen to this episode. All right. We're going to move on. Jake Clink Clinker. Jake Clinker. Yeah, he, took it to me in a race. Hey, Jake. Yeah, he's got some wheels. Big jerk. Um, <laughs> hey, Kirk. I've really been enjoying the podcast and commentary. Oh, thank goodness. It's November 5th. Oh, God. Oh. Dude, you're going to feel like money, except you're going to poop your pants, probably, if that's your I'm going to run hit. 450 the first mile, and I'm going to walk it in is what's going to happen. <laughs> With your butt cheeks clenched <laughs> together is what's going to happen. All right, Jake Klinker. Uh. Hey, Kirk, I've really been enjoying the podcast and commentary during the uh, NAES, North American Elite Series, races this year. Not sure if this is a question that could be addressed on training Tuesday or not worth it. Obviously, it was worth it. I screenshot it here, Jake. I got myself an incline trainer as I'm living up in the mountains at 8,500 feet in Estes Park right now and need something to train on during snowy winter. 
I did my first attempt at 15 minutes at 15%, and I was able to do 1.7 miles. Could have done more as I started out way too conservative and doubled the initial speed by the end. Heart rate stayed right around threshold or lower, but I noticed that when I held on to the top bars for stability, it felt a lot easier. So I'm wondering if this is cheating or not. Is this an invalid result for holding on holding the top or is that considered okay? Thanks. I loved this question so much because it's the soapbox I love to stand on. So I'm very We get this from athletes all the I'm time. So glad you asked, Jake, because there's probably a hundred people listening that need to hear this. I would bet. And I think it happens more during max gain. That's the sixty minute treadmill challenge than the fifteen minute. I think it happens all the damn time is what I think. We're smiling the way we would smile at a buddy, Jacob, when we say this. So please see our faces as we're we're smiling and laughing with you. But yes, that's cheating. And so no, it does not count. But I don't think I could do one seven holding on right now. So there's still something there. Um, It's cheating like bringing a gun to a knife fight. It's cheating like getting in the ring as a 40-year-old man versus a four-year-old child. It's cheating as if you, you, you did something you shouldn't have in front of your wife and didn't care. It's cheating in that regard, Jake. I'm sorry, but it's that bad. What it does when you hold on is it changes the angle in which your feet and body are in relation to the belt. In fact, when you hold on to the top and allow your trunk to follow, which is how most people do, it's almost the equivalent of running at 5% or below. And if not, you can at least wedge yourself up into the air through space by putting downward force on that, making it utterly and exponentially easier. I wouldn't be surprised if that's a 1-4 or less without your hands holding on. It's such a common and innocent mistake. And even in some quality workouts when I'm having a mentally tough day, I've tapped the handles. I've touched it quick. Have you? Oh, briefly. And then I'm like, it's over and I'll pull the plug. In fact, I did that today. I pulled it. I was like, what are you doing? Obviously, you've overcooked. I never in like a test. I have never done it in like a test. Yeah. Um, It is... uh, what I would actually like, this would be great, Jake, because it's such an innocent mistake. It's not something to feel silly about because um, people do it all the time. I would love for you to retest, and I would love for you to write us in and tell us what the score was uh, without even so much as touching your index finger on anything. Nothing touches anything after you hit start. I'd be very curious so we could actually come back and, as a proving point, tell the audience what the difference is. I think that would be fantastic, help, fantastically helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. And and I don't know if it's like a 40-year-old boxing a four-year-old. I think that crosses my line by hyperbole. <laughs> but imagine Whatever. You throw babies you... out with bathwater. That is way worse than a 40-year-old fighting a four-year-old. You don't throw babies out under any condition, Brad. What if I threw them into a a, a, a foam pit? You, we didn't say where they landed. You understand what I'm saying. Throwing the baby out with the bathwater yeah, so, is but, immoral. But, yes. I want to put it into perspective. If you were doing pull-ups and you tapped your foot on the ground on each rep, just tapped it lightly, how many reps would that add to your max pull-up test? Five, maybe. Or if you just, yeah, just just that little touch 
does, even if you're like, I wasn't pulling down on the handles. I was just resting myself there for balance. Even if you just let your feet touch the bottom or touch a box underneath you on every rep, it would make a significant difference. Even if you didn't put much force into it. So it does matter. But like Kirk, I just want to see you retest because I did a treadmill challenge at altitude and it was miserable. And I tried it one other time at higher altitude and I quit. It was terrible. I did it in Crested Butte. Macaulay and I both tried a treadmill challenge at Crested Butte. And I think it was 9,000 feet. Horrible. So bad. Sounds terrible. Um, love that question because so many people do it. So I hope that the right people heard that today. So thank you for that. Don't feel silly. Retest. Would love it. And, and I've heard that logic. The only way I can hike at 40% is to hang on. If it's any, if, if otherwise it's going so slow, I'm barely moving, or I'd have to go down to 35 or 30%, but I'm prepping for a mountain at 40%. And that's one of those things where like our brain's not to be trusted. That sounds very logical. My race is at 40% and I have to be able to get up it. So is it any different than pushing off my knees during power hiking or using poles while I get up? Well, the difference, yes, it is actually different. I would rather have you at 35% or 30% and actually moving under your own power than grabbing on because you're right. It changes the incline. It really does. So, uh, just PSA don't, don't fight four-year-olds. You got to let go and go slower or go lower, but do it under your own power. Don't throw babies out under any circumstance. Never. Unless it's a baby skunk. <laughs> I saw a skunk this morning. Good point. I wasn't just or a snake that. or a spider. I mean, it sounds random. But. Spider for sure. All right. Oh, yeah. Most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life, Kirk. There's a giant wolf spider on our kitchen floor back when we lived in Walworth. So big. It was at night. We were watching TV. We had all the lights off. I slowly stood up. I took a flip-flop and I hit it. It was so big I wanted to use a flip-flop mm-hmm. rather than just like grab it with a Kleenex. And it disintegrated into a thousand pieces in front of my eyes. And I couldn't fathom what was happening. And Lisa's like zooming around. She started spraying stuff and started vacuuming. It had like 200 babies on its back. And she understood it as she saw it. But I, I could, my mind couldn't grasp what I was seeing. It was the only time like in my life I can remember not understanding what, my vision was telling me because I was so focused on it. And as I hit it, it just poof, like a magic trick puffed into a million pieces and they just scattered. Oh, you still probably found them around the house for some time after that. I was like, Lisa, we, I think we, we have to move. I think the most horrifying thing you've ever seen is a homeless man staring at you while you're pooping it, but I could be mistaken. It wasn't good for either of us. Okay. To the next. He's going to tell his kids about Let's that. Let's go. What do we do? Maybe right. two more questions. How's that sound? Okay. Or, I mean, what do you think? This will be a quick one. Okay. Well, let's see. Let's see. Okay. I find my form on long runs and distance runs doesn't look, in quotes, like a runner. By that, I mean I don't see my heels come up high enough, and I don't really feel my hamstrings too much. When I do track or speed work, that's the only time I feel like my legs are truly turning over and my form feels right, in quotes. How can I fix this so that I have proper form turnover all the time? Am I just running too slowly? I do find that when I try to run like this during a long run, my heart rate goes up too quickly. Any ideas? This is what it feels like to not be a pro. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it feels like not to be genetically superior. (laughs) Welcome to feeling flat-footed. Do you have anything that jumps right out at you? 
cadence. Du, no, du, it's du, almost like this, a sequential du, du, process. Du, yeah. It's <clears throat> most people don't have a high back kick, especially at slow paces. That'd be inefficient to some have of, a slow pace. Some of the fastest people I know don't have huge high back kicks. In fact, some of the people in the Chicago Marathon didn't have a huge back kick. It's not all it's cracked up to be, and it matters less <clears throat> the more broken your terrain is and the hillier the terrain. Mm-hmm. So that's just a little mental boost to know that it's not necessary. I find the more I run, whether it is slow or fast, like the more mileage and the more frequently I run. Like if I go from three to four days, four to five days now, no matter if my legs are tired or feel good, I still typically feel efficient because it's just a learned like my body just like, oh, it's like walking now. It's like, oh, it's, this is what we do. And it just feels efficient. So I find without thinking about what your legs are actually doing, frequency seems to really like you just your body knows. It just remembers like riding a bike and your body goes right back into what it should. Um, and so I find the frequent runner tends to feel more efficient on those slow days. It's like your body just has figured it out on its own without overthinking it. And I've found that from jumping from three days a week for the first six months to four days a week for the next six months. And now five days a week recently, I've noticed a big jump in how I feel on my fillers. We'll call it just efficient. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's something to that as well. Memory. I'm going to go someplace you probably didn't expect to go. And I certainly didn't when I first read this, but I think this is the power of so-called gray zone training. When we run fast, we often run perfect. And when we run slow, we run like us. Gray zone is fast enough that you run better, but slow enough that you can't possibly use your prancy, pretty, really fake stride that we use on speed work. I'm a victim of this. I have like seven different strides. (laughs) Like five of them suck. (laughs) Two of them are really nice and I can't keep them for very long. But gray zone training, which I don't believe is a thing to be useless i think it if it's used with a purpose it helps this is where you start to move the needle where you find what is my tipping point is it lactate threshold let's say is a half marathon pace is it marathon pace is it 10k pace is it high end aerobic where is the point where i fully transition over in stride from fast to slow from pretty to ugly or from ideal to less ideal and in between there you start working at that Now I can keep a slightly slower pace for longer with that stride. And then you move it down in pace or you move it up in pace, but you start to kind of bridge the gap, but you can actually have a targeted block of training. I believe that is purposeful for working on using a better stride at in between paces so that you get closer and closer to whatever your race distance is now has a long term, beautiful stride. I don't think we have to look good running slow. I think we have to look and feel good and be sustainable at whatever you're going to use on race day. What I found for myself as well, I agree with <laughs> that, um, is sometimes you're just in the wrong drop. Yes. Like the wrong drop. Of big. Shoe, like you got a shoe with 10 millimeters of drop. It's hard not to heel strike in those. It's hard not to be clunky in those. I found when I realized an even new drop was a thing and I just shifted down to six millimeters or less for me, better yet, four, I am so much more fluid on my recovery days. Like for me, drop was everything. And so I just shifted Mm -hmm. like, hey, six is my cap and less is even better. Five or four, great. And so for me, drop made a huge difference. So maybe looking at like what what do you – maybe you want to play with the drop in your shoes as well. 
um, that would be something like a quick fix that might make a big difference on recovery work. Yeah. Yeah. I have been doing the super shoe experiment, Kirk, that we talked about because of John Albin and, uh, and everything else we discussed is, is it a great training tool? And you know what I think? Maybe even more than allowing me to do more work because I still can't do crazy amounts of work because of that weird thing I have going on. The Maybe the biggest benefit to me has been that I can much more easily run well in mm-hmm. super shoes, stride-wise. Mm-hmm. Just run well. And it has made me way more cognizant of that fact when I'm not in super shoes and it holds me accountable because I'm used to feeling spectacular in those shoes. And then I don't feel that feeling. And unlike caffeine, I can't just like quick pop it and feel good again. I'm intentionally not running in super shoes, but I can emulate how I felt. And it's been really useful. I believe that when I regain the racing fitness that I believe is coming, I will look better in the second half of races directly because I've been running more in super shoes and it's caused me to kind of cement some pathways there. And then I can use that to learn on my other days. I truly believe that. I haven't done the experiment yet. I'm still like saving them for the special days. I might wear mine once every other week, but I could very much as soon as I start my warm up, like I'm cold. I start running Mm -hmm. within a hundred meters. I'm like, I'm already clicking. Like I'm clicking, I'm like a hundred meters in my heart rate hasn't hit 80 yet. And I'm like, Oh, there it is. Right. Locked in 15 seconds. I'm using them really, that, that quick. Oh, right away. I notice when I'm just in my warm up. I'm like, well, that put me right in the efficiency pool. Yeah. And there's, to me, there's two types of super shoes. There are the shoes that you use and the shoes that use you. <laughs> yeah. shoes that use you like the alpha fly and i would say the endorphin pro it forces you to do a certain thing that it wants you to do in order for it to even feel comfortable mm-hmm. like within a few strides you have to be running the way they want you to run and those are the ones that do it and i know you've been running the alpha flies so that would make sense yep. so i'm doing two full workouts per week right now exclusively ah, one one or two exclusively in super shoes in another workout where i switch shoes every four reps Super shoe, regular, super shoe, regular, where it's speed sprinkles and I'm running perfectly and then emulating it and running. So I'm, I'm trying to do this process and it's working. I think, you know, we, uh, we sat smack dab on the super shoe fence for a long time. And look at us. You came through, came through this journey with us listeners. If you've been with us for a while, look at us sellouts over here. Um, we're selling out. Paul McMorrow, athlete of mine for a while. He's got a marathon coming up. Marine Corps marathon is going to crush it. Paul asks, I don't know if this is a question for the Q&A, but curious what you think. Well, of course. All the super shoe talk, we'll just lead right into it. All the super shoe talk you guys have had over the past couple months helped push me down a rabbit hole on the advanced running subreddit. And he puts four links here. Hmm. Um, that threads, I'm assuming. The consensus on the corner of the internet seemed to be that at the same pace per mile, super shoes are least beneficial to runners who land mid or forefoot and run with higher cadence compared to a runner who is working at a lower cadence and putting more force into the heel to toe off motion, especially at slower paces. So this is saying the super shoe seems to be more beneficial for heel strikers from what he's reading than to forefoot strikers. Like it's inherently helping the heel striker more. It's what he's reading. He's not claiming this. 
<laughs> I've run exclusively in zero drop shoes for years. He loves his ultras. He's always running ultras uh, for years. And my cadence on flat terrain is around 180. For easy and tempo work, I'm targeting sub 340 at my full marathon, and I'm happy to be there. But in absolute terms, I'm not setting the world on fire with pace. With that said, is the internet right on this one or not? Should I be thinking about dropping 200 bucks for a plated marathon shoe? Or with cutting out, or with how I run and run in right now, should I just show? Come on now. Come on. Oh, should I just show up to start line in a cushy trainer that I already know works with my mechanics and stride? In reverse order, Ultra now has two options for you. They have a carbon-plated super shoe, and they have a non-carbon supercritical foam, along with all of their other options they've, they've always had. So I believe it's the Vanquish and the Vanquish Tempo. So you have options even within your own lineup already that are that are worth um, exploring. Some people do not like them. Some people love them. Hmm. Um, but the internet is right. Partially. Certain strides really benefit from certain shoes. But there, the super shoe th- phenomenon is only as powerful as the shoe you find that matches your foot. Because some strides work really well for some shoes. And other people's strides work really well in different shoes. And Asics even capitalized on this by making a stride and a cadence shoe. Mm. They said some people are stride-based runners and some are cadence-based runners. Some people just turn over quicker and some people extend their strides and power into the ground when they want to go faster. And they made the Metaspeed Sky and the Metaspeed Edge. And one is more of a bouncy alpha fly type and one is a firmer, fast-tipping shoe for getting over quicker. One's for boing, boing, and the other one's for So if Asics believes in it enough to put out two different shoes, could it be marketing? Yes, but they are significantly different in the way that they feel and the way that they run. So the internet's right, but there are options for both. The most common shoes are probably the Alpha Fly and the Vapor Fly, and they are the examples of that. Alpha Fly is only a four mil drop, I believe, and the Vaporfly is eight or ten. They've changed well, the alpha both went, those shoes went slightly. The first version was a four. Now I think the Alpha is an eight. They bumped it. Did they? I believe so. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. And the Vaporfly is like eight or ten, uh, but they tip much differently. So, um, yeah, definitely, definitely has merit, and it's worth feeling shoes out. Kirk and I have both run in multiple super shoes now. There are some I don't feel much in and other people swear by. Mm-hmm. For example, that Puma Deviate, Nitro Deviate Elite. I My first comment to Kirk was, I don't know how Molly ran so fast and mm-hmm. ran a marathon in this. I wouldn't put this on to race a marathon in. But the faster, which some people are like, ah, I just wouldn't do it, man. This thing feels legitimately fast to me. Mm-hmm. It's all about foot and stride. I like the boing boing. Yeah. yeah. Give me that boing boing. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. But I also like the Endorphin Pro, which is absolutely a tip you forward. Yeah, I like that one too. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. Some things just don't work. Some, I mean, we can clearly do both, but not of all shoes. So yeah, you just got to test them out. I think a lot of, that's the hard part. They're 200 bucks. I think a lot of people lump them. <laughs> like, oh, it's a super, it's a carbon plated super shoe. And we all lump them in the same category. Like, oh, well, it's going to achieve the same thing. Nope. Mm-hmm. Like, they could be as different as brand to brand or control versus neutral shoe. Like they could be so different. It can be a carbon plated super shoe, a super foam and one to the next, even in the same brand 
can feel like mm. you're on different planets. And so it doesn't, they don't all induce the same thing. Same technology is put into the bed and the insole, but with the shape of the shoe and the drop and the, it's like, it does they're not even close to the same. They're as different as any other shoes out there comparatively. It's going to get to the point where you're going to need a shoe fitter, like road racing and mountain bike and triathlon bikes need a bike fitting where you pay an expert to measure you and set you up and tweak you and, and, and find the thing, the saddle that works for you and the handlebar. You're going to have to do that with shoes. Eventually they're that, for example, the Adidas Adios pro two, I think feels the closest to the alpha fly I've ever felt. If I strike correctly, mm. and I usually can on the treadmill, and then I took it outside for a tempo run and I hated the shoe. I could not find how to strike in that shoe. I was uncomfortable the entire time. So I tried it the next time and I was a little better, but I had to work to try to find how to hit the ground in that shoe. Because outside, I can't control my stride as well as I can on a treadmill where I don't have to worry about anything other than hitting the ground. I think for like a duck or what would that be? A duck footed runner who strikes a little bit on their instep, it would be so good, but I tend to roll out. It just doesn't work for me outside. So even that shoe depends if I'm running outside or on the treadmill. It's wild. And I'll say, I think just go to like a running warehouse. They include, I've said this a number of times, include a return shipping label, go out and give it a two mile run. That'd be enough to know. You can Make sure it's cleaned up, run on clean terrain, send it right back. Not a problem. I, I'll tell you, I, I bought a pair of Alpha Flies and they were on sale. And I, what it was the first thing I said to you, Bracken, do you remember? I hate them. I said, I hate them. I put them on. I was wearing jeans. I went and ran down my block and back and I said, I hate them. Then I went for a real run in them. Like putting them on in the store and jogging around what I'm getting at tells you nothing with a super shoe either. You need to get rolling in it and then learn it. Then I went out and I'm like, I got to give this a try. I was ready to send them back without even putting them on a real run. I was like, I absolutely hate this. Mm -hmm. Little did I know I was a damn idiot. Once I got up to speed, started running hard, it was like everything changed. And it worked with me. It didn't work running down. But anyways, that's a whole nother deal. But you can't like just slip them on and be like, nope, or yep, you got to get rolling. It's it's maybe the thing they're most different from a regular shoe in. And then in a regular shoe, you can just run however you want in them. And at some point, they may stop feeling as fast or they might feel heavy, but they feel the same. These super shoes have a type of stride that they work for for you. And it's different for everyone. Like the alphas for me, they are best the faster I run. Like some people, they're marathon pace. For me, sure. But those are 5K or faster shoes. I just, they come alive at 5K pace for me. And other people are like, no, those are long run shoes. It's when I put on those Pumas, the Deviate Nitro Elites, walking around in them, I'm like, this is going to be maybe the best shoe I've ever wore. Until I started running fast in it, and I realized it's okay. Mm-hmm. And the the faster, I thought, they're okay. And I put them on, and I thought, these are really good once I get like under 10K pace. So yeah, you have to feel the yep. paces out before you can make a decision. Yep. The old track in the running store back and forth twice for 10 yards ain't going to cut it. Um, if we haven't bored them now that we finish with shoot talk, what do you think about wrapping this up? Wrap it up. I still got like seven screenshots. We didn't get to folks. I am so sorry. We will keep them in the cash. We will push them back. You will hear your answers. albeit late. And I will not consume caffeine the rest of the month. That's a who's with me. I just want to know who's coming with me. If we were into it, we'd play the cricket sound effect right now, but we don't. We don't get fancy like that. 
No, we don't. Do you know? I have one sound effect saved. We <laughs> I never told you this. One of our early interviews, I swore right in the middle of it, the guest farted. And when I went back through and edited it, there was a brief pause and a very audible fart. And I saved it. I saved it as a one second audio. <laughs> and I didn't know why or what I was going to do with it, but we have one <laughs> audio effect sitting there in my files. And it's a, it's a famous person's fart. You never know. Like, do I remember who this you was? You never know when that's going to... No, I didn't know. I forgot. Did I it. miss it, you think, in the moment? Was I... This is from our podcast? Huh. Yeah. I yeah. I, so we have a, a semi-famous fart sitting here. And I don't know if I can make it into an NFT. I don't know how that game works. But eventually, I, this just might be my retirement. I'd like to know who that was, but let's not do that, I suppose. No, nah, the person's not famous enough for that. But, and I have no idea why. I thought... I think I was going to send it to them and be like, hey, you want me to keep this in or out? And I, I never got around to it. But their fart's just sitting there. Right. I got a fart file. Right, as soon as we hit end, you're going to tell me who it is. I will. <laughs> okay, that's it. Hope you enjoyed this episode, guys. As always, lots of uh, different paths and rabbit holes. So thanks for those questions. See you guys. Enjoy your long run. Mm-hmm.